So we're asking here for our leaders to step up to the plate. That's what we're asking for, and that's what's going to be required to organise this transition. The governance of new technologies has to address issues of social justice, it has to address benefits to communities, and it has to address democratic inclusion and decision-making. Because we have had inaction for so long that we're missing that window where we could actually design a better system. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you from the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. I'd also like to acknowledge the ancestral lands that we're all joining from and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. It's my great pleasure to be chairing this panel this evening, addressing disorderly transition and the question of what technologies we need. This event is hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute, a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. My name is Kate Owens, Director of the Australian Centre for Climate and Environmental Law at Sydney Law School, and also a Collaborative Fellow at the Sydney Environment Institute. My research focuses on governing climate mitigation and climate-related transitions. We have a terrific panel of contributors here with us tonight, and I'm really looking forward to hearing their perspectives on everything that's happening. And there's plenty going on. Uh, Australia's in the midst of an energy transition. We have a new federal government with ambitious renewable energy targets that are similar to state levels. All of this is looking promising for driving increased uptake of wind and solar. But to achieve net zero across the entire economy, we're going to need to have other technologies and, and policies to support wind and solar. At this point, we need to keep our options open and have everything on the table. And there are a couple of aspects to this. So within the energy sector, we need technologies to back up wind and solar when they're not producing energy. So what uh, the Germans would call Dunkelflauter events where there's no sunshine, no wind and in cooler conditions. We may also need new technologies to replace natural gas in hard to abate industries and to provide solutions for countries that, unlike Australia, um, don't have the land required to um, absorb all of these wind and solar plants. And certainly green hydrogen has been touted by some as, as one of the solutions to these challenges. The second aspect to this is that um, Australian policies tend to focus on the energy sector, but we do need to answer that question of how we get to net zero across the entire economy. What are the new emerging technologies? And what roles are they likely to play? How should they be governed when they raise complex risks and equity issues? And what policy reforms do we need to be considering right now? Another question is the extent to which we're prepared to divert public funding to these emerging technologies at the expense of proven technologies like solar, uh, wind, batteries, pumped hydro um, and electrification generally. Is there a danger 
that these emerging technologies are going to be used to divert and delay and which industries are pushing these technologies. So with the, that very brief background, um, let me turn to our fantastic panel tonight. We have four participants this evening. We have Susan Park, Professor of Global Governance at the University of Sydney. Susan researches how intergovernmental organisations become greener and more accountable and how accountability in turn can be used to improve global environmental governance. Diana D'Alessandro is an ARC Future Fellow and Professor within the School of Chemistry at the University of Sydney. Diana specialises in materials chemistry. She's had over 16 years of professional experience in carbon capture and is passionate about interdisciplinary efforts to address climate change through negative emissions technologies. We have Francois Agazinzu, who's heading the Merlin Research Lab in the School of Chemistry at the University of Sydney, and he's an expert in hydrogen technologies. His group's been working for many years on the properties of light metals and their hydrides for hydrogen storage application and commercialization. And finally, we have David Schlossberg. David's a professor of environmental politics at the University of Sydney, and he's the director of the Sydney Environment Institute. His work focuses on contemporary environmental and environmental justice movements, environment and everyday life, and climate adaptation planning and policy. So I'm going to begin our discussion now with Susan, if I may. Um, Susan, can you explain Australia's transition to renewables like wind and solar to date? Um, what have we learned about the role of wind and solar um, and, or, or the role that they're likely to play in Australia's transition and the need for other technologies to support them? Thanks, Kate. Um, well, obviously, you know, we are currently experiencing a very disorderly transition to sustainable energy. The window for a habitable future within the 1.5 to 2 degrees window is closing rapidly. So we urgently need to decarbonise our energy use and systems. And we know one of the best means to do that is renewable energy. So I'm just going to put Australia's uh, tracking in, in, a, in a global context. We are seeing a global and dramatic uptake of renewable energy, but it's still insufficient. But we are seeing three dominant technologies at the global level. This is hydropower, and this is by far and away the largest renewable energy technology being used, particularly in the powering of, of Asia. Uh, followed by solar and wind, and this is electricity generation and capacity. Globally, IRENA has identified that we need to shift from 14% of renewable energy to 40% of our total energy by 2030. So that's within eight years. We're talking about a very, very, very sharp uptake necessary. The good news is that the cost of solar and wind has been falling and that it is now cost competitive with fossil fuels. In Australia, we're also seeing a rapid uptake of renewable energy, although this has been much more recent and it is still insufficient. And this is mainly due to the intransigence of the federal government seeking to prolong the use of coal and gas, which is holding Australian consumers hostage to high energy prices, even when coal-fired power plants are becoming uneconomic. So we're, in, we're seeing similar trends here in terms of the increase primarily of solar followed by wind and then hydropower. 
And renewable energy now constitutes a third of Australia's total electricity generation. So driving this uptake is small-scale solar, and we can attribute this to policy settings by government, the desire of Australian consumers for renewable energy, and the ready availability of the technology. We're, of course, seeing states introduce larger-scale batteries in South Australia and Victoria to try and ensure the storage of renewable energy. So this is a really exciting prospect to move to more larger-scale uh, solar and wind, and hopefully that will continue. I really also want to point out that we aren't talking about fixed technologies. These are improving over time. This is a constant means of innovation, and I'm sure everyone here on the panel will identify with that. So over the last few years, offshore wind was not considered economic and therefore not viable, and this has completely changed. Wind and solar come in a range of sizes and types from small floating wind turbines to large-scale wind farms and offshore behemoths. Solar, too, is also rapidly changing. So one of the main positive benefits of wind and solar is this idea and the possibility for energy democracy. Wind and solar can be deployed at almost any scale. This means that they can serve to democratise and decentralise energy supply at both the national and regional scales, as, as well as potentially at the household level. Specifically, renewable energy can increase a nation's independence and reduce our reliance on global fossil fuel supply. And this is obviously incredibly important when we talk about the ability of people to get to work on time, you know, whether or not it's electric vehicles or public transport that is powered by, uh, by solar or, or wind uh, through, through battery storage. At a more localised scale, it can enable households and local communities to generate their own electricity and become uh, less reliant on existing centralised supply models for, for energy. But, of course, you know, I don't want to be just the rah-rah for, for wind and solar. We've got to recognise that there are environmental impacts from this renewable energy transition. We know by looking at the life cycle analysis that wind and solar do have an environmental impact if you look at the life cycle from cradle to grave of these technologies. But wind remains one of the cleanest of the renewable energy technologies in terms of the impact on the environment and human health compared with fossil fuels but also with other renewable energies. So studies have indicated that environmental health and accident risks are lower for wind than for fossil fuels, and it also has a completely lower life cycle non-climate impact, so not the release of greenhouse gases. We do recognise that wind turbines can have impacts on biodiversity, they can lead to habitat loss and other impacts, and they can increase the mortality for bird life and bats owing to collisions. But there is not much evidence of long-term population impacts, suggesting that adaptation may be occurring. Wind turbines have less impact on bird life than fossil fuels, than nuclear plants, than transmission lines, as well as ordinary communication towers, and the number of people that have cats for pets. So we've got to bear in mind all of the potential impacts of the different types of technologies as we need to rapidly transition. And we can also point out positive environmental benefits from some of these technologies. For example, large-scale offshore wind turbines can provide a locus for coral reef creation. 
Of course, we are now at the end of the first generation life of wind turbines and solar PV, and safe disposal is becoming paramount. Solar PV can have a high non-CO2 environmental impact in terms of impact on soils and water, given the toxicity of photovoltaics. And both solar PV and turbines, wind turbines require the extraction of critical minerals. Both can have health impacts, including exposure to radiation and toxicity, and this obviously demands further investigation. But one of the biggest social issues pertains to communities who remain deeply divided over the real and perceived impacts of wind turbines and solar farms on landscapes, on property values, and on prime agricultural land. And this really reinforces the need to have discussions with communities about the siting and the benefits of renewable energy, such as the renewable energy zones currently being undertaken in New South Wales. As the Joint Australia Institute SEI Renewables in Rural Australia report makes clear, we need to ensure that the economic benefits and the environmental and health harms are distributed evenly, that inclusive benefit sharing and culturally appropriate consultation with First Nations peoples is formalised and backed by accountability and transparency measures, and that environmental and social harms are managed through careful planning In short, we need to decarbonise immediately and wind and solar can be managed to achieve it. Thank you, Susan. And I think all of that really underlines the need for governments to govern these transitions in a way that brings community communities with them. Um, we have to get this right. And, and these are incredibly important questions of, of social license. Um, Deanna, we, we've heard about the various dimensions of renewable electrification there from Susan. Governments are building their plans around net zero and, and sometimes they're explicitly discussing negative emissions. I'm interested to hear how we achieve net zero and also the potential role that you see for direct air capture in this process. Um, but first, what is direct air capture exactly? And is it the same as, as carbon capture and storage? Yeah, thanks, Kate. Look, the distinction between direct air capture or DAC, as it's known, and carbon capture and storage, CCS, is a really critical one to make. Um, and look, put simply, direct air capture is the removal of historical emissions of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So this is not involving point source capture. And what that means is with direct air capture, there is no involvement of fossil fuel users or producers. And very importantly, the captured carbon dioxide is not used to enhance oil recovery or for additional fossil fuel um, uh, extraction. So there, there are two important distinctions. The other really important distinction, of course, with point source capture of carbon dioxide we often think about requiring very long pipelines to be implemented, um, going hundreds and or thousands of kilometres to some sort of sequestration site. With direct, direct air capture, and particularly the uniquely Australian direct air capture solution that we work on with our industry partners, really the benefit of this is it's an autonomous system in the sense that we locate the direct air capture systems immediately adjacent to wherever we're going to sequester the carbon dioxide. So particularly here, we harness solar power 
um, to, to run this fully powers the direct air capture system and that captured carbon dioxide from the air, from the ambient air, is then either geo-sequestered deep underground into depleted saline aquifers or saline aquifers and, and into, I guess, using mineral carbonation, um, or it can be used for some type of um, useful purpose. Um, I did want to, Kate, just um, come right to the sort of moral hazard argument, because I think it is really crucial that we just be really completely honest and upfront about it, um, because obviously we could consider direct air capture as a distraction to what is really important here. Um, but I think this really comes to the evidence, um, and of course we've just had the release of the State of the Environment report, um, all of the evidence showing that all pathways that limit global warming to one and a half to two degrees must involve carbon removals, the removal of historical emissions of our emissions from the atmosphere alongside mitigation approaches. So I guess the reality here is Australia has no plans around negative emissions. Um, we obviously have some natural sequestration and that's being looked at at the moment by a panel, I think headed by Ian Chubb, looking at the Australian carbon credit units and the pricing of carbon. Um, but I did want to um, just sort of come to the point um, that there are enormous opportunities here. And so I think in the spirit of a picture speaks a thousand words, there was one show, uh, slide that I hope to show. And this is really the vision from Southern Green Gas, our industry partner, for what the potential here is for some of these new types of industries like a negative emissions industry for direct air capture. So really the vision here is a new manufacturing sector for regional Australia. This technology is earmarked for non-arable land, so otherwise non-fertile lands, harnessing Australia's vast solar resources and also the enormous resources Australia has in terms of its um, ability for geo-sequestration. Um, so in terms of what the opportunities are here, it's not just the negative emissions and actually dealing with this terrible climate situation we have and the need to draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But it's also the fact that, for example, we can harness the booming green hydrogen industry that Francois will talk about. Uh, we can use green hydrogen, react it with our sustainably sourced carbon dioxide and make a range of e-fuels like sustainable aviation fuel, e-methanol. Um, we can also use that sustainably sourced carbon dioxide for agricultural and horticultural users that currently use fossil-based carbon uh, sources. So I guess what I'm proposing here is actually a multi-billion dollar industry for Australia, a very serious new export industry for Australia, a new manufacturing sector for regional Australia, and importantly at the centre of this, opportunities to really build resilient communities. Thanks, Deanna. Look, I'm interested to hear how scalable you think direct air capture will be and what what would this this technology cost compared to other options over time? Yeah, look, it's the obvious question because if you considered, um, and just from logical thinking, a nature-based solution, you know, go and plant some trees, why not plant some trees? Well, I guess the thought bubble here is Australia's emissions over the last two years were 1 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide. So to remove that, we'd need to plant a forest over the entire land area of New South Wales. So I'm not saying that nature-based solutions aren't important. They're absolutely critical. And direct air capture is just another part of the portfolio of solutions that we need. So it's very expensive compared with a nature-based solution. And there are sort of two parts to the scalability and the cost here. 
Um, one part is the scaling of the technology itself. So at the moment, uh, voluntary purchases on the open market are paying US $1,000 per tonne for the carbon dioxide. You can contrast that with say an Australian carbon credit unit, unit an ACUS, uh, for say a nature-based soil sequestration around about the 20 Australian dollar mark. You can see there's a massive differential here, but that will come down in time and the goal is US $100 per tonne of carbon dioxide. You also have to remember there are enormous co-benefits that I mentioned. You know, we're really opening up many opportunities here for a manufacturing and export industry for Australia. Um, so that's the first part. The second part is the scalability of geosequestration. And in fact, Australia has the opportunity here to be an enormous player internationally. Um, we have upwards of 300 gigatons of potential storage um, across the Bass Strait, Northwest Shelf, uh, Cooper Basin and Erromonga Basin. Um, we are, you know, our geology is exceptional. Uh, potentially exceptional for doing this. Um, on the costing side, I mentioned 1,000 US dollars per tonne, which is currently what um, our customers are paying for this. And that's very different to the US $100 a tonne where we want to get to. But what's very significant is that we have very important pre-purchases in the marketplace, uh, like Microsoft, uh, Meta, Stripe, uh, Frontier, uh, Puro Earth, which was purchased by the NASDAQ last year. And these companies recognise that to come down the cost curve, there urgently needs to be investment to test these technologies and provide robust information about can they be part of our portfolio of solutions for negative emissions. And so they're there standing in the marketplace and they are investing in our technologies. And so this is why it is, it's here. The train has left the station around the rest of the world. Australia is still holding back but we do have an enormous opportunity. Thank you, Deanna. Francois, Deanna mentioned that, you know, green hydrogen has its place within this ecosystem, but what is green hydrogen exactly? Thanks, Kate. That, that's always a recurring question. So as you know, different colors have been put to hydrogen so they can speak to the general public and, and make it easier to understand. But really what, somebody will call green hydrogen is a hydrogen with a low carbon footprint. And for example, the European Union started to put a CO2 target on that, on that green hydrogen. But you would imagine that in the future, this green hydrogen will have also a low environmental footprint. And for example, Germany started to look at the water stress around producing that green hydrogen. So typically, green hydrogen is hydrogen that is produced from an electricity source that is non-polluting. So in France, for example, uh, the push is for nuclear to produce that green hydrogen. In Australia, because there are no nuclear stations, it could be produced from renewable energy and using water as a source of hydrogen. So we have plenty of water around us, but the question is also how do you manage that water? And how do you manage that water uh, against the need of communities and the need of other industry taking into account the variability of climate change. And I think here there are some issues that, that needs to be managed properly. So for example, in Australia at the moment, we have no way to monitor water consumption for energy production. And I think pretty quickly, we need to have some proper monitoring on how we manage water to produce green hydrogen. Thank you, Francois. I am really interested in hearing 
the, the role that you see for green hydrogen and decarbonisation, particularly in this Australian context, um, where we do have an abundance of, of wind and solar, do you think that green hydrogen is going to be a niche application for hard to abate industries? Or do you see a greater role for green hydrogen here, you know, including for export? So if you take the European Union, different countries have different policy, for example, Japan, uh, for energy security, security reasons, it will take any form of hydrogen. So blue hydrogen coming from natural gas to start with, with the intention to decarbonize their energy supply. But the European Union uh, is more strict on that, and they really want some green hydrogen. So the question is not if Australia should be producing a little bit of green hydrogen or a lot. The question is what the market is really going to need. And in the long term, the market is going to need green hydrogen because we need to decarbonize. Then the, the question for Australia is uh, how this green hydrogen can be produced, where it gets produced, and how this also creates a domestic market. And uh, attached to that question is who is going to create this domestic market? At the moment, we rely on free trade. And so the biggest question behind this is who is going to own all those assets to produce that green hydrogen? And what are the real jobs that are going to be created for the country? So you can take the LNG sector as an example. So once the LNG plant is built, so you had all those workers that built that plant. So for example, you could imagine there will be workers needed to build all the solar panel or the wind farm we need. But once those things are built, what do we do with all those workers? It's an excellent point. And, um, you know, you can't really have a fly in, fly out wind and solar workforce, can you? So um, you're right, these are huge questions to be resolved. Um, David, I might come to you now. Um, you, you recently signed a letter against solar geoengineering. Can you explain to us exactly what this technology is and what were the concerns that you and your colleagues raised? Yeah, I'm sort of the odd one out on this panel because I'm talking about a technology that I suggest um, we don't need and shouldn't uh, explore. So solar geoengineering describes a set of hypothetical technologies to reduce the incoming sunlight uh, on the earth in some sense to just attempt to dim the sunlight. So the most prominent proposal is to inject aerosols into the stratosphere to block a proportion of solar energy coming in. I mean, it's sort of a way to create artificial volcanoes uh, in order to cool the planet. Now, the objections to this technology are multiple. Um, first, of course, there are the potential impacts, and especially the unintended and the unknown impacts. So, so far, the efficacy uh, of the technology and the risks of it are poorly understood. We do know that risks would likely vary across regions, but we don't know how. Uh, there are a lot of uncertainties about the impacts on regional weather patterns, on agriculture, on the provision of basic needs of food and water. I mean, there are some very serious and potentially disastrous impacts. So there's deep disagreement about whether the risks and effectiveness of solar geoengineering could ever be fully understood before it's actually used, and so the risks will remain. But my main concern, other than that, is that there's no proper global governance uh, in place for the technology. 
that'll have a global impact. It's not just about a regional uh, use of a tech. We're talking about global impacts, and we just don't have governance. So critics like myself uh, see the deployment of solar geoengineering as impossible to govern fairly and effectively if we assume that proper governance should be participatory and inclusive and just. So a key question for me is how we guarantee inclusion of those most vulnerable to climate change, how we include those most vulnerable to the impacts of the technology itself uh, and the decision making and include them in the decision making uh, around the technology. Of course, now some of the proponents of the technology argue that absent any other action, climate change will impact the most vulnerable first and worst. And they use this climate justice justification uh, as a justification for solar geoengineering. But my argument in response to that is you can't simply achieve climate justice by addressing one aspect of justice and violating another, right? It's not just to exclude people from decision-making and expose them to potential risks without their inclusion and consent. So generally, and this relates to the idea of social license uh, of all the technologies that we're talking uh, about tonight, the governance of new technologies has to address issues of social justice, it has to address benefits to communities, uh, as Susan raised earlier, and it has to address democratic inclusion and decision-making. So the, the third um, concern is something that Deanna raised, and that's the moral hazard issue. And I actually think the moral hazard issue is much worse for solar geoengineering uh, than it is for, um, for direct air capture. The moral hazard here uh, and the idea of moral hazard is that researchers and governments will be focused on this technology at the expense of other technologies that we already have that can solve um, the problems that we face. And it's often been the case that a future technology is proposed as a solution to the climate problem um, in a way that uh, delegitimizes and delays the obvious uh, and existing technologies. So we have this array of technologies already uh, to implement. Those are texts that can be directed by existing forms of governance. They can be inclusive. They can be democratic. They can address the kinds of benefit sharing um, that Susan talked about. But I think solar ge geoengineering really fits the description of a moral hazard um, that's dangerous, especially when you look at who is supporting and funding uh, the research. Um, but I think it's also crucial to understand the obvious that geoengineering at best can only be and ever be a band-aid, but it doesn't address the underlying issue, that gaping wound uh, underneath that's growing every day, uh, the need for decarbonization. And so it can only delay the necessary transition. Um, and I think worse than that, uh, it really does offer some comfort to uh, the delayers by suggesting that we have an easy way out uh, of the worst impacts of climate change uh, without changing our carbon-based way of life. And that's just not true. So given that sort of uncertainty of impacts, the lack of governance structures, the potential injustices, the moral hazard, um, I was one of the initiators of a campaign for a global non-use agreement uh, on this planetary level. Um, use of geoengineering. And we started with a group of about 60 climate scientists and social scientists. Um, and we have now over 350 signatories uh, on this uh, on this ban or this proposal, um, including academics and NGOs and individuals. So it really is um, the most mainstream and the most supported statement um, in this social geoengineering space. 
it's it's um it it does really underline that that need to be clear on the potential roles of these technologies as well you know what are going to be you know in their nature complementary technologies you know at um yeah band-aids potentially but you know we, I mean everything should be on the table but you know some of them are only ever going to be complementary to to the main mitigation um, measures that we need to have. I'm interested uh, when you talk about potentially democratizing um, solar geoengineering um, I'm keen to hear and I'm, I, I assume you're sort of talking about global scale um, measures rather than regional scale geoengineering but what are you looking for specifically in terms of government responsibilities around these technologies so the call uh, calls upon governments to support five core measures really and it's pretty straightforward um, asking for a prohibition of the use of tax money uh, for public funding of this planetary level uh, solar geoengineering research uh, we're asking for a ban of outdoor experiments of solar geoengineering technologies uh, in areas beyond uh, the local. We're asking uh, to refuse patent rights for technologies around solar geoengineering, which would enable profiteering and the privatization of decision-making. Uh, we're asking for governments uh, not to deploy technologies that are developed by third parties uh, on solar geoengineering. Uh, and we're also asking for governments because geoengineering does nothing about decarbonization, um, we're asking for governments uh, to institutionalize uh, a ban uh, on planetary social geoengineering as a policy option in relevant international institutions, including assessments uh, by the IPCC. Thank you, David. Look, I think that's a great place to, um, to finish our panel questions um, and and bring bring it back to. Um, Bring it back to some of the, I, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the, the policy space, um, and I'm interested to hear um, you know, the, the suggestions that panellists have for concrete measures, concrete policy measures that governments should be considering uh, right now. Um, so I'd like to start uh, with Susan again, actually. Um, what are one or two policy, um, policy measures that you'd recommend to governments? Okay, well, I think obviously one of the biggest ones that's come out of the research that is being done by the Sydney Environment Institute with various partners is the need for um, sort of listening to communities about what they want and how they want to be part of this transition. Um, one of the biggest concerns has obviously been in rural communities that are shifting away from being dependent on fossil fuels and they have um, expressed time and time again that, one, they're not being listened to Two, they want the active involvement of all levels of government in Australia and that they would like to be active in having a decision, excuse the dog going off there in the background, um, in, in, in what sort of role that they play. So there's clearly room for a great deal of um, engagement by communities and by government in being able to make these decisions about renewable energy and, of course, concerns about where, where they are cited, how they are how those decisions are made, what sort of impacts they will have, how they will have access to this energy, how the government, what, how much of a role will they play compared to private providers. There is going to have to be some sort of engagement from public-private and, and communities all working together. So that's probably my primary policy recommendation. Thank you, Susan. And it, it's certainly the case that this, you know, it's a problem 
not only for generators, you know, who, who have done a lot in terms of um, uh, community benefits, but also transmission, you know, that I mean, we're looking at the, you know, the integrated um, system plan that came out and there's going to be massive transition lines um, all through the NEM. So, um, you know, we're going to have to find uh, or reconceptualize this whole idea, aren't we, of, of community benefits um, in this infrastructure. Um, Deanna, do you have policy suggestions for government? Yeah, look, I, I echo a lot of Susan's comments there, but I guess, you know, thinking specifically about negative emissions technologies like direct air capture, there are some very specific state and federal level policy um, uh, things that are missing, I guess, at the, at the minute. So at the state level here in New South Wales, we actually do not have the policy nor legislation to enact direct air capture with geosequestration. Um, so surrounding states, Queensland, Victoria, South Australia, um, as well as Commonwealth offshore legislation does exist for geosequestration, but we don't currently have that in New South Wales. So around the world, there are certainly now examples of best practice, and that best practice um, right at the core of it does involve environmental justice and many of the considerations that Susan was just mentioning. So we, we do have learned colleagues from whom we can learn what best practice is. And I actually believe that New South Wales has the opportunity to be the Australian leader in developing responsible policy and legislation um, that will set Australia up for you know, the decades and centuries to come. Um, I guess at the federal level, um, I would love to see nonpartisan support. It's really interesting that in the United States, they have the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed last year by the Biden administration. And I mean, it's extraordinary that in the US that anything could be bipartisan. <laughs> but I would like to hope that in Australia, an issue as important as carbon drawdown, which we know is absolutely essential to reach our net zero goals, um, that perhaps we could have a longer term vision than just the next three years. And so, you know, I mean, I echo Susan's comments here about designing environmentally just policy um, that benefits place and benefits community. Um, and I actually believe this is the opportunity we have right here, right now, to um, redefine the relationship with First Nations peoples in Australia um, and to put us on a path to a, you know, a somewhat orderly transition. Excellent. Thank you, Deanna. Uh, Francois? I would say that we need a plan. We have a national strategy for hydrogen. We don't have a plan for a transition. And we need a plan to understand how we do that transition and where we want to be in 20 years and how our society is going to look like in Australia. So it's not just about the technology, it's about the communities. And this has been mentioned several times already. And it's about how industry can transform what are going to be the new economical model and business model, because we have, for example, in the hydrogen space, this target of $2 a kilo. Nobody knows where we go there. The price of green hydrogen today is more closer to $6 a kilo or higher. And so with the hope that sometime in the distant future, we will go to $2 a kilo. So this $2 a kilo is maybe 20 years away or 10 years away. So we need a plan. Thank you, Francois. And the final word for David. Yeah, um, I mean, I've mentioned a number of policies specifically on solar geoengineering, but but more generally here, rather than specifics, I think it's key. And I think what we're getting at here is that any sort of technology that is supported by government funding really has to be subject to um, research on its impacts uh, and support research on its impacts. 
has to be subject to clear governance structures and inclusive oversight, um, and has to include some sort of resource sharing uh, by impacted communities, as we've talked about. So I think it's really more of a, uh, of a democratic legitimacy and a social license set uh, of policies that would cover a range of things. But I think the other, the other thing I would point out, and this is the really difficult one <laughs> among others, is that we tend to look at these policies in isolation, and we can't do that anymore. Um, when um, folks locally were looking into a decarbonization around energy and transportation, I kept on pointing out the co-benefits, right? If we electrify cars, for example, we lower pollution out of tailpipes. There's a health benefit there. There's a co-benefit on the health side. But that's often outside, most of the time, it's outside the scope of the way that a single policy is costed. So we need to think in more complex ways and more interrelated ways uh, about policies and our evaluation uh, of policies and need to be able to link um, both the costs and the benefits uh, across the kinds of barriers and not just issue barriers, but these are hard <laughs> bureaucratic barriers, you know, from planning to finance, to energy, to environment, to resilience, in the, just in the state alone, um, let alone what happens at the federal level. Thank you, David. And I, I think the key challenge here is, is that is how we're going to achieve that broad scale coordination. You know, what are the new institutions that are going to be needed for this transition? Um, because because clearly that you know they're not there at the moment. So we do have a few minutes for questions, um, everyone, and I invite the audience to submit questions to the panel via the Q and A box. Um, some audience members have sent through some questions already for me. Um, so uh, Susan, I might start with you again. Um, Lyndon asks, what role for degrowth, planned or not, in the disorderly transition? There is none. <laughs> That's a short answer. Um, it, it, our entire um, economic system is based on growth, um, economic growth, uh, almost at all costs. So consumption is increasing, um, production is increasing. Uh, we just continue to to uh, sort of ramp up. You know, we need more stuff uh, to order in order to have a happy life. Um, there, there is no plan to move to um, any form of degrowth in terms of um, limiting our needs or living within planetary boundaries. So, um, of course, I think that that sort of recognition may come too late, uh, but at this point uh, there's, there's, there's absolutely no discussion of that. Can I respond to that question as well, just, just a little bit, because I totally agree with Susan, but people throw these terms out like degrowth without the kind of nuance that's necessary. And Francois made this point in an earlier session that some of these industries are starting with nothing. We need to have growth there. We need to grow these new industries. And so growth is absolutely central. But at the same time, um, we do have to be focused on using less energy, right? We can focus on things like efficiency and cutting back the need for the amount of energy uh, that we produce. And Australia is spectacularly bad uh, at this, incredibly wasteful and inefficient. So if that's what the idea of degrowth is, is that sort of careful consideration and much more efficient use of resources, um, yes, maybe there's there's plenty of room there. Thank you, David and Susan. Um, that's a great response. Um, Deanna, I have one for you here. Um, Andrea asks, or well, she's interested to learn how technology should be selected and organized around humanity. 
Yeah, I guess we, we've kind of touched a little on environmental justice and community-led research as well. Um, but I guess, um, you know, really I think our Australian context is actually quite unique. And although there are learnings and best practice that, that we can, you know, we, we can share and discuss with the rest of the world, um, there are some unique attributes to our context as well. Um, you know, we're a smart, we're an innovative country, so we should be able to figure this out. Um, but of course, what we don't have is this comprehensive set of policies, which as David has just mentioned, it's, it's very complex when you recognise that actually there are enormous co-benefits here, but actually this is, an, this is an ecosystem we're building here in this transition, and it's a really new ecosystem for Australia. I think it's exciting, there are enormous opportunities, but we don't yet have, we're swinging in the breeze in a sense, and really what we're kind of missing is this open conversation um, and rigorous and objective debate to decide which combination of the solutions um, are actually best for Australia and how we work closely with our local communities um, and ensure that we're privileging First Nations peoples um, and bringing them along, bringing everybody along on this journey. And for that, although, you know, for example, if I talk about direct air capture, look, it's trading on the open market, on the international market. People are buying carbon removal certificates in Australia. But the problem is bigger than this, and we, we do actually need governance and we do need guidance and we do need a plan, as Francois pointed out. Um, and so we're asking here for our leaders to step up to the plate. That's what we're asking for, and that's what's going to be required to organise this transition around humanity and, and around our environment as well and the biodiversity that we have too, taking care of that. Thank you, Deanna. Francois, I have one for you here before I tackle uh, the Q&A box. Uh, Kenrick asks, are there profitable ways to implement some of these technologies commercially for startups or individuals? Uh, there are always profitable ways, but to make it short, is it really the, the question? So if we don't have a planet where we can live on anymore, what's the profit? And I think we know now that technology are great, but we also need to understand their impact and how to use them and how to create economic models that are sustainable. So we use resources, we recycle them, so we can reutilize them and the technology we develop can also be recycled and don't go to waste and have minimal environmental impact. So these really call for a new way of thinking about the economy and how we do things. In that new model, there may be ways to make money, I'm not sure that's the best way. That's the best outcome we are looking for. Thank you, Francois. There's some great questions um, coming through the Q&A at the moment. Please just give me a moment to work through them. Um, I, Gareth has a question here for, um, for Deanna. Deanna, could you explain what Australia would export with uh, direct air capture? Thanks for asking for the clarification. So there are a number of export, I guess, export, export aspects to this. The first are carbon removal certificates. So when we talk about geosequestration of the carbon dioxide, we're generating what are called negative emissions. So for every tonne of carbon dioxide that's removed from the atmosphere and locked away for geological time, whether that be geosequestration or mineral carbonation or enhanced 
weathering, um, we, we generate money for that, if you like. So I mentioned that at the moment on the voluntary market, carbon removal certificates are trading at around the US $1,000 per tonne, in fact, a bit higher. And the goal will be to get that to about US $100 per tonne. But there are many co-benefits as well. And I think I just wanted to throw something in. It's not for wide discussion, but maybe a provocative thought that rather than decarbonisation, we actually think about defossilisation. Because what we need to stop is digging stuff out of the earth and emitting it into our atmosphere. And obviously then it has the, the impact on our environment that it has. So really, um, in terms of export industry here, we're talking about creating a circular economy for carbon. So this is using sustainably sourced carbon dioxide rather than carbon that we dig out of our earth and is emitted into our atmosphere creating a circular economy, creating e-fuels, so leveraging the booming green hydrogen industry, using that with our sustainably sourced carbon dioxide to make fuels that allow us to power our world in a sustainable way, rather than using our resources in you know, a non-sustainable way. It's a very comprehensive response. Thank you. Um, Aransa asks an interesting question here that I'm going to put to David. Um, how do we balance the pressure and need for immediate action with the need for having enough evidence and planning for the implementation and escalation of clean energy technologies? It's a really interesting question. Look, I think it's the, the balance is the question, right? I mean, the balance is key. And, and one of the things that we've seen in Australia over the last decade um, is a cutting of basic research money uh, that would enable us to understand technologies and the impacts on communities. Um, for example, um, uh, you know, CSIRO just came out with its, uh, uh, what do they call them, the, um, the mega trends uh, for the next couple of decades. And climate adaptation is at the top of the list. Uh, climate adaptation would include the kinds of uh, public consultation that we're talking about here. But in the last decade, all of the money for that federally uh, has disappeared. All of the research money adaptation has disappeared. So the, the way you have that kind of balance is that you actually listen, and you do research, you, you learn um, uh, about the risks, you learn about communities, and you actually put that uh, into effect into decision making. Uh, and we just don't have that kind of support for that front end research right now. Uh, and I think that's absolutely key. Heather asks an interesting question here. It goes to governance, so I am going to put this one to Susan. Um, it is likely that all states will put in place different legislation. Do you see that as an obstacle to implementation? That's a great question. It's kind of a yes and no question, right? It's because it's urgent. We need to do this now. So anything is better than nothing at this point. But of course, this is part of this disorderly transition that we're seeing, which is that, you know, like like moving into, into this, you know, the fossil fuel age itself, when we started to have, you know, tracks with different gauges for railways, you know, it just makes things more difficult um, in terms of how, how we as a society um, are able to go about our business. So, yes, it's going to be more difficult. Where those pressure points will be, um, I don't know, um, but I do think that, um, that there does need to be a national plan, as Francois was saying. We do need to get a comprehensive idea as to how we can use various technologies together 
um, and to, to, to get the best out of this transition. I mean, one of the things that is perhaps um, so disappointing is that because we have had so in action for so long that we're missing that window where we could actually design a better system. Um, so that that's probably my my sort of off off the cuff response. Great. Thank you, Susan. I'm going to come back to Francois now with a big question from Karis. How can the world avoid climate and, and the panelists may want to chip in here as well, other panelists, but how can the world avoid climate catastrophe if more coal, oil and gas sources are approved and funded? Yeah, that's that's a big question. It is. It is. <laughs> uh, uh, yep. I'm not sure what we call climate catastrophe. Uh, at the end of the day, I think there will still be some of us living on Earth, maybe not as many as we were we are today. Um, that's a very difficult question because we already know that we should already today stop digging out of the ground and stop using fossil fuel. We are already on the trajectory for two degrees C and we can't stop that anymore. So the question is then what are we willing to compromise and what we are ready to compromise? I'm sure all of us don't want to give us on the comfort in our house. That's a hard question. And so the developing countries also wants to develop. And so how we do that, uh, that's a question for a United Nations question. <laughs> but I'll, I'll let my, my colleague answer on, on policy. Would anyone else like to come in on, on this question? I do have a few more to cover. Um, David, I'm going to cast the lens back to you. Um, Christina asks, how do you think about the balance of climate mitigation and climate adaptation strategies facing um, acute problems like heat and floods? Well, I mean, that's absolutely key and we need to do both at this point. Uh, we, Deanna and I both mentioned this question of moral hazard and people used to talk about adaptation research as a moral hazard, right? If we start doing adaptation research, then we're going to, you know, give free, re free reign for folks to uh, keep on um, polluting with carbon. Uh, and so adaptation research was really put on the back burner for quite a while. But now it, it's not an either or, it's a both. Uh, Australia absolutely has to. I mean, we know we have to do more adaptation uh, in this country. It's absolutely crucial um, given the heat and the fires and the flooding and, you know, repeat again and again. Uh, it's, not, it, it's not going to get better here. Um, and so we need to do both the mitigation in order to limit the amount of climate change that we're going to have to adapt to, but we are going to have to adapt simultaneously. So I do, again, really appreciate that this is a mega trend to focus on adaptation, but that doesn't mean that we stop focusing on mitigation. It's just absolutely crucial. Thank you, David. Um, I would have to agree with that. And and T Tash asks a really useful question here. Um, a point of definition that I'm going to put to Deanna is, is it worth distinguishing between solar radiation management and the direct air capture that you've described, Deanna, rather than considering them both under the term geoengineering? Uh, yes, in one word, they are very, very different things. So um, I guess just briefly, you know, direct air capture is really drawdown of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. There is no geoengineering that's happening. It is it is not it is not doing anything to the 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 um, the air, if you like, other than purifying it of the carbon dioxide. So very, very distinct technologies. Great. Thank you, Deanna. 
Right. Um, David, you, you have um, touched on this point, but I will put this final question to you. Um, what are the key ethical principles that should guide us when we collectively can determine what is considered best practice versus not so good practice, e.g. with solo, uh, solar geoengineering? So Susan referred back that, I mean, that's the great question. It's a key question. Of course, I would say that as both a political theorist and a political scientist, I would say that's the key question. But um, Susan mentioned uh, the research that SEI did in partnership with Australia Institute on the renewable energy zones. And I think what is really heartening to me in that research is that community members are calling for the same thing that democratic theorists and, uh, and others are calling for, um, which is more community engagement, um, more recognition of the inequality of potential impacts, um, more attention to First Nations knowledge and what benefit that can bring, um, again, as an element of climate justice. Uh, and then real benefit sharing, um, not privatization of, uh, of the benefit. And, you know, these are things that we talk about as part of good governance. This is part of Susan's work. Um, but these are things that community members have said again and again uh, what it is that they want. The interesting thing about that res study um, uh, was that it was done um, in rural communities that had already been exposed to utility scale solar and wind. So these are communities that had that experience that are laying out these basic principles. And I think we need to listen not just to the researchers, not just to the democratic theorists, but to community members who've had the experience of transition and have some real suggestions for how to do it well. Thank you, David. I think this is a good place to finish. We've come to time unfortunately um, this has been an extremely interesting and engaging uh, discussion and I'd really like to thank the panelists for all of their contributions and for their hard work preparing for this session tonight it's been terrific to have um, all of your insights into what net zero might look like um, and what it will take to get there and I think we can all agree that there are many paths um, to net zero amongst all of the disorderliness and that we should not be deterred. So thank you all for having me as chair. Um, thank you. Thanks to all of you who joined us this evening and contributed to the Q&A and this concludes our event. Um, please follow our events through this uh, SEI newsletter that you can all sign up to through our social media channels. Have a good evening, everyone. Mm -hmm.